Um, when you walked in, we have our new handouts. Did everybody get a handout? If you didn't get a handout, raise your hand and we'll get you one. Who doesn't have a handout? Okay, everyone's got one. Wonderful. Um, if you weren't here last week, we also have some leftovers from last week's study. Last week's study was introduction. This week's study is Daniel 1. Now, some of the, the young gentlemen out there are colouring in on the introduction ones. So these are the leftovers. So who needs an introduction handout from last week? This has the, the colouring in on it from the high school students. Okay. Um, does everybody have a Daniel journal Bible? Okay, who doesn't have one of these? These are available at the front as well. We want to make sure that you get one of these to complement the study. So you can write down the notes, the things that you've discovered, the, the things that you've learnt, um, the things that God has taught you. The purpose for this is to study, to annotate, to write down, to get those notes, to get those kind of um, creative juices going um, as you study the scriptures. So if you can... If you need one of these, you can grab them at the entrance there as well. Um, before we start tonight, um, just a bit of a recap from last week. Does everybody remember what we looked at last week? We looked at Daniel's world. And there were three prominent kings in Daniel's world. Does anybody remember the names of those three kings? Uh, loud voices. Okay. Josiah. Yes, you know, the righteous King Josiah, the last good king of Israel, okay, which was the second prominent king in Daniel's time. Jehoiakim, yes. He was the, the second son of Josiah, and he was actually the king that was largely responsible for what happened to Daniel through his rebellion. And then the third king is the most well-known king, which we're going to learn a lot about I guess over the next few weeks, we're going to find him again tonight. What was his name? King Nebuchadnezzar. Well done. Well done. What did we learn about Israel last week? Where God placed them, where they were situated. What was the purpose of God placing them where he, where he did? A city of influence. Crossroads. The crossroads of the ancient world. God is a missionary God from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. God does not change. So these are some key things that we looked at last week. This week, we're gonna be jumping into Daniel chapter one. And I think that Daniel chapter one really sets the tone for the rest of the book. It gives us an idea as to who Daniel is, Nebuchadnezzar is, it sets us up for this kind of picture to see what Daniel is up against and the fact that Daniel stays true to his God in the midst of such opposition right from the outset. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll jump straight into our study. Father in heaven, as we open your word here, this evening, we invite your spirit to be here with us. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and Father, as we come to study your word, Father, we don't treat it casually, but Father, we recognize that we need you. I ask and pray that you be with me, that you may speak through me, that these words, Father, may not be mine, but rather yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Boris can't be here tonight, he's unwell. He's more unwell than me, so don't get too close to me. I'm at the end of a sore throat, which is probably a throat infection now, because that's what happens with me. Boris, if Boris was here, well, yeah, um, I was the least sick out of both of us. So he's got the next two, so he owes me. 
because um, I spent all of today preparing this because he prepared a lot of this last week. Anyways, um, if you look at your notes here, you've just got a little bit of an introduction. Remember, I kind of finished last week's study with this thought, and the thought was, imagine what it would have been like for Daniel, okay? Um, and I'm just going to grab the little clicker here. Imagine what it would have been like for Daniel being taken from your homeland, taken from your family, um, into a foreign society with foreign gods. Like, you imagine being marched across the desert to this place, you didn't know what was going to happen. It would have turned your world upside down. Daniel arrived at this place called Babylon. And this is Daniel's new world. In fact, it is his world for the rest of his life. He's going to die here in Babylon. And so these are just some things about Babylon that I think are really interesting. I, I do like archaeology. I do like history. I enjoy it. And so I hope that you enjoy it. That's probably why you're here tonight. But Babylon, the name Babylon, or the, the, the name Babylon signifies the gate of the gods. Babylon was a very polytheistic society. In other words, they believed poly, more than one, numerous gods. Daniel belonged to a a religious belief which was monotheistic, one God. They were polytheistic, numerous gods. And this is the world that Daniel has walked into. Now, I mean, it is different but the same because you consider what Israel was in the time of, I guess, his captivity. There were many gods that were being worshipped, but they professed to worship the one true God, Yahweh. The gate of the gods. It was a large city filled with splendor. Nebuchadnezzar took pride in what had become of the city during his reign. And in Daniel chapter four and verse 30, he's walking along the walls of his city and he says, look at this great Babylon that I have built. He took a lot of pride in this. He did a great work with establishing Babylon to be what it was. The city of Babylon was 518 square kilometers in size and had the river Euphrates running through it. This is massive for ancient standards. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus actually went to, to, to Babylon and he was overwhelmed by the size of Babylon. Babylon was the most glorious ancient city of antiquity. It was protected by two double brick walls with towers and eight gates around the city. Now, when I say there's two walls, this is gonna be a little bit confusing. There's the outer walls and the inner walls. The outer walls have two walls and the inner walls have two walls. Okay, you see your notes here. This was a real deliberate defensive strategy. If somebody wanted to get to the heart of Babylon where the kings were, then they had to go through a series of walls in order to get there. And so the two inner walls were 3.6 meters and then 6.7 meters thick. Okay, the two outer walls were 7.3 and 7.9 meters thick. And so if you were an opposing army that had to get from the outside of Babylon into the inner heart or inner sanctum of Babylon, you had to go through how many metres of wall? 17.6 metres of wall. That's a lot of wall. Like, there was a large contingency of slaves that built these walls. It's another expression of power and of might. And the river Euphrates ran underneath these walls through the city and out to the other side. And we're going to actually find how important that actually was in a later study. And so there was gates over this river. There were more than 50 temples in Babylon. Polytheistic society. The chief god was the god of Marduk. And many of these temples were covered in gold. In fact, the temple for Marduk, which was their chief god, 
contained 18 tons of gold. Now, we kind of get lost with how much that is. Does anyone know how much one ounce of gold is? It's around $2,500. One ounce. A land cruiser, Paul, it's probably about two and a half to three tons around that, probably two and a half. Okay, how many land cruisers is that worth of gold? This is in one temple. There are 50 temples. Herodotus also speaks about even after the, the conquest of Babylon, when the Greeks have come through and stuff, that there's just gold everywhere throughout Babylon. It was a splendid city without rival in the ancient world. It was so rich and it was so glorious. Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. He actually built it for his wife. She was a, a, a princess from uh, Media. We're gonna find out about the Medes and the Persians later. She was, I guess, forlorn because she'd been taken away from her native country, which was very hilly and very luscious. And now they're in the desert just out of Baghdad. And so Nebuchadnezzar shows his might and power by building the hanging gardens of Babylon. He's planting cedars, masterful might here. Um, and it's interesting, they had mechanical hoists to transport the water up to the top of the garden. And that these gardens could be seen above the tops of the buildings of the city. The, the Babylonians were very intelligent. Very intelligent. There's 60, 60 minutes in an hour because of the Babylonians. 360 degrees because of the Babylonians. They counted to six. Six was their key number. And in chapter three, you actually see that great statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. It's 60 cubits by six. Six was the emphasis of Babylon. It's the emphasis of man, which is actually, you can have some end time connections or significance there if you're thinking of that. Um, actually, before I go too much further, this is actually, I guess, an outline of what the city would have looked like. You see the, the river running down through, I'll get this working the river running through just here, that's the river Euphrates, and this is the city of Babylon here. This here is the, the entrance to the city, which is this thing called pro, the processional way. Has everybody heard of the processional way or processional street into Babylon? Now, talk about a grand entrance into the most glorious city of the day. This is what the processional entrance would have looked like. About almost a kilometer, this straight long street, with walls of about 10 meters running along either side, leading up to the Ishtar Gate, one of those eight gates. Nebuchadnezzar had erected all these, Daniel would have walked past through these. This is interesting, this is the excavation of the Ishtar Gate. If you like archeology, span it's pretty cool. Um, you can't really see too much here, but if you zoom in, you can see, this is all in black and white, but this would have been covered because it was enameled with blue and so there's blue and, and, and vibrant yellows coming out of the brickwork. This is the Ishtar Gate. The processional way, this was, was um, along the walls for about a kilometre on both sides, you have the lions and these lions actually have eagle's wings on them. Keep that in mind, store that in your mind because in Daniel 7 we're gonna be looking at this again. This was a symbol representing Babylon, their might, their power. This is in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. If you ever get a chance to go to Berlin, this is something you have to see. It's remarkable. And that's what they look like. You see the, the lion there with that big long wing down the side here. That's the lion there that 
we've been speaking of, and they're just all the way along this one kilometre of entrance here. And this is the Ishtar Gate. Doesn't that look beautiful? The beautiful blues, the vibrant blues, and there's, there's dragons and there's other animals. And like I said last week around the side, Nebuchadnezzar's put a little inscription there so we don't miss it. And I've got it written here. He says, I place wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateway and thus adorn them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze on them in wonder. That's Daniel. That's Daniel's new world. Bit of a culture shock. You thought that COVID was a culture shock? Can you imagine that? And not only that, this was Daniel's experience. He was marched from Jerusalem here all the way up the, the coast of the Mediterranean, inland through here to the city of Babylon, almost 1,000 kilometers. It's a long way. So if we open our Bibles, we go to Daniel chapter 1. We're starting in verse 3 today because last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 to set a bit of a context of what was happening. Now we're going to see this test of Daniel, and it's really interesting because it's introducing us to this character who is called Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, verses 3, we're going to read through to the end of verse 7. This is what the Bible says. It says, The king instructed Ashpenaz the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. What do we automatically find out about Daniel here in this verse? He's got good blood. Royal family, noble blood. He was the cream of the crop. And does everybody remember why this was important in our story? Why did Nebuchadnezzar choose these men? So they would assimilate them. They would take the cream of the crop from the nation that they conquered and they would indoctrinate them and train them, assimilate them and then their nation would be actually strengthened and the opposing nation would be weakened. In fact, what they would also do, that they would train these individuals up and they would often send them back to their homeland as vassals. So there would be like a mediator between them and the nation that they conquered. It says, young men in whom... There was no blemish, but good looking. I find it interesting that the first characteristic is that they looked attractive, which was actually really important in um, Eastern Oriental culture, that they looked the good. So we know that Daniel was attractive. It's a shame that he was a eunuch. Gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacy and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, where are they getting their food? From whose table? From the king's table. This is something we're gonna come back to. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, these young men arrive in Babylon in 605 BC. An immediate culture shock. And they're confronted with three spiritual attacks that we find in those seven verses just there. 
the first attack that we find that they're confronted with is their identity. Their names are changed. Now for a Bible character, a name had a, a very important significance because your name represents your character. I mean, Adam means from the dirt, from the ground. Jacob means supplanter. Names have a significant meaning. Israel, Jacob's name was changed from supplanter to Israel, wrestling with God and overcoming. Names have significance. And so the names of these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, denote character and their relation with God. Extremely important. Even Jehoiakim's name, even though we see how terrible he is, he didn't live up to his name, it was actually a significant name. I can't remember exactly what it meant, but it actually meant Yahweh gives power or something like that. His name was actually Eliakim, I think it was initially. But then um, the Egyptians changed his name to Jehoiakim because Eliakim means God gives him power. But they changed it to Jehoiakim because they wanted to communicate that Yahweh is a lesser God because our gods have actually changed his name. So names communicate something really important. And if a power is changing a Hebrew boy's name, it means that they're trying to change their identity and their relation with God. So what is Daniel's name changed to? Call it out loud voice. Belteshazzar. What is Hananiah's name changed to? Shadrach. What is Azariah's name changed to? Abednego, Mishael, Meshach. All right, so you see on page two here, I've actually got the meanings of these names. So Daniel's name means God is my judge, okay? Which is the prominent theme that we see throughout the book of Daniel, judgment. That while the, the empires of this world are passing on false judgments, the living God, the almighty God is, is promoting true judgments, good judgments, righteous judgments. God is in control. Daniel's name is changed to may Bel protect the king. Bel was one of those many gods in the pantheon of Babylonian gods. Mishael's name was, it meant, who is what God is. Isn't that a cool name? Your character is expressed as who is what God is. You reflect God. It's changed to Meshach. Who is what? Aku or Aku or however you want to pronounce that. It's, it's inverted. And then the, the emphasis is placed on this pagan deity. Azariah's name means Yah has helped, Yah being Yahweh. It's changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Hananiah, Yah has been gracious. It's changed to Shadrach, command of Aku. So the first spiritual attack that they receive is the change of names. That's a change of identity. They're trying to destroy their culture, their religion, their faith in God. They're trying to bring them down so they can build them up the way that they want. The second attack on their identity is the education. Now in verse four, what does it say? It says that they are trained in the language of the Babylonians and also the literature of the Chaldeans. Now I can tell you something right now. They had some pretty funky practices in Babylon. Um, particularly if you're trained to be a wise man. There's lots of things that you have to learn. These guys weren't kooks, even though they did some kooky things, but it was quite ordinary for the time, quite usual for the time. 
they were actually considered to be scholars, the wisest amongst them. And I've got a little extract here from the SDA Bible commentary and just a little point on that. As you study through Daniel, it's good to look at Bible dictionaries, Bible commentaries. You can read Prophets and Kings. There's an excellent chapter on this, on this, very, um, on this very chapter. Um, really great points in there. So to complement your study, to give you deeper insights, I encourage you just to dig deep into the Word. Um, this is what it says in the SDA Bible commentary. Now, this is what Daniel would have been trained in. Now, I'm going to make an important point. I don't think that Daniel would have participated in these things. He's not going to eat the king's food, which was dedicated to idols, so I don't think that he's going to be trying to communicate with the dead. But these are some of the things that the wise men were doing. And in chapter two, you see how powerless it actually is. It says, future events were divined by looking for signs in the entrails of sacrificed animals or in the flight of birds. So you kill an animal, pull out its gizzards, and then the gods teach you something by how that looks or how birds fly. Divination was especially practiced by inspecting the livers of sacrificed animals and comparing them with inscribed model livers of clay. Now we think this is all a bit kooky, but this was actually what, there was an entire employment class in Babylon and this is what they did. Cut open an animal, what are the gods telling us? Find the liver, cut that open, compare it to a clay liver and say, okay, the gods are telling us such and such. Probably similar to horoscopes, I don't know. Um, they also looked at a lot of astrology and the signs of the, the stars and such. The diviner also interpreted dreams, worked out incantation formulas by which evil spirits or sicknesses allegedly could be banished and asked advice from supposed spirits of the dead. The literature of Babylon. Does it sound wise to you? Is there end time significance to this for us today? Because it, isn't it interesting, what the world often esteems to be wise is actually foolishness. And we have the benefit of looking back into history and seeing the advancement of civilization, but dare I also say that just as society, as that was the prominent ideologies and understandings, and this is coming from the institutions of the day, I can tell you something, just because somebody has certain letters after, or no, letters after their name, it doesn't mean that they're an authority on everything. There is one in whom we should submit complete allegiance and authority, and that's the living God. Babylon is often wrong. Sometimes it's right. And I'll give you an expression of how it's right. 360 degrees, um, 60 minutes in an hour. Like These are things that are beneficial, but not everything is beneficial. We've got to be very careful. So the second thing that we see that, that they're using to try to, I guess, change the identity of these young men is education. Does Satan do the same thing today? The third thing is diet, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So in verse 5, we'll just read this again because this is the point that I really want to draw out here. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. Now, I want you to think about this. How far has Daniel traveled again? From Jerusalem. About a thousand kilometers. Don't you think you'd be a little bit hungry after that? He's, he's a prisoner of war. He's a captive. So he's probably not prioritized. The soldiers and the citizens of Babylon are probably more prioritized than him. 
and he arrives at this foreign land, most likely malnourished, hungry. And guess what's put in front of him? And, and I think that this was intentional. Make them hungry, then offer them a smorgasbord of food, food that they can't resist. And you imagine the smell of that wafting in. Has anybody here ever been so hungry and then they get a smell of KFC? <laughs> Actually, I was hungry tonight. I walked into the office and I could smell some KFC chips. And I knew it before I even saw it. I did the 40-hour famine when I was, a young, when I was young. Look at me. My metabolism is so fast. It doesn't matter what I eat, nothing changes. And I remember I probably got to about 26 hours and my mum went and bought a cream bun. She put it in the fridge as a, this is your reward when you finish. Now she should have bought it for me when I finished because I went and ate that thing. I couldn't, I just couldn't deal with it. So here's this guy, like here's these young men. They've been taken from a place where there is a lot of, I guess, adversity and food is scarce and they're marched a thousand kilometers to this foreign land. They probably have little to eat along the way. They're probably arriving malnourished and the king says, here's my food from my table. What did the king usually eat? Well, if the temple from Maduk had 18 tons of gold in it, guess what his, his, his dinner table would have looked like? The very best. Anything that you could have wanted anything that you could have imagined, it would have satisfied the senses beyond belief. This is the environment that Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah find themselves in. Do you think that would have been a difficult temptation? But it's not just that, there's also the pressure, isn't there? Because who's giving them the food? It's the king. And to reject his expression of hospitality, even though there's a catch to it, is actually going to be going against the king. And what do we know about Nebuchadnezzar? Does he like to be offended? In fact, in chapter two, he's offended because the wise man can't give him the answer to the questions that he's asking. And he says, I'm gonna make you and your families and your homes a dunghill. And then the decree goes out to execute all the wise men. In fact, Daniel, Daniel's friend Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah won't bow down to the statue in chapter three. And so he says, and they actually defy the king to his face. And so he says, make the fiery furnace how many times hotter? Seven times hotter. And then after he's proven to be wrong, he makes a decree, any person that defaces the God of Israel or speaks out against him, he will be destroyed. This is a nice guy. And so it's not only the senses and appealing to the senses, but it's the pressure of, if I reject this food, I'm rejecting the king. He holds my life in his hands. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, four young Hebrew boys. Now let me make this point. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take four young Hebrew boys. He didn't go to that great effort just for four. There were many of them that went. But there were four that said, we're not gonna eat this. Now there's three main reasons why they wouldn't have eaten it. Number one, you can see your notes here on page two. The Babylonians ate unclean meats. And you can see what is clean and what is unclean in Leviticus 11. The second reason why 
is that these animals, even if they were clean meats, they wouldn't have been killed according to Levitical law, which means the draining of the blood and certain processes for, for killing meats. You can see the references there. And the third reason, which is probably the biggest reason, these animals were most likely offered as sacrifices to the Babylonian gods, which was actually an ancient practice. This food, because they wouldn't drink the wine as well, the food and the drink had been involved in some worship service to these pagan deities. Nebuchadnezzar, you can call us what you want, but we won't eat your food. Do you think that would have been a hard thing to resist? Number one, you're hungry. Number two, there's the pressure, do this or else. What I love next is the very next verse. For me, in the whole book of Daniel, we have the book of Daniel because of the next six words in chapter eight. Let's read it out together. But Daniel purposed in his heart. That's the book of Daniel for you. Daniel purposing in his heart. He doesn't choose the path of least resistance. He chooses God's path. Whether it's easy or whether it's difficult. God's way is best, not the king's way. If Daniel did not purpose in his heart here, do you think we would have this, this book of Daniel? Not a chance. And isn't it interesting that Daniel draws the line here on something so seemingly small and insignificant, such as diet? What does that tell you about compromise? What do the little compromises often lead to? Bigger ones. When Jesus was baptized, or before he was, well, after he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and was tempted. What was one of the temptations that Jesus faced? Diet, food, turn these stones into bread. Can you think of another story in the Bible where diet is the, the stumbling block? What was that? Eve, the Garden of Eden. It looks good for food, desirable to the eyes. To make one wise, it's a great one. We're in this mess because of appetite. I can think of another one, Esau. He sold his birthright for a pot of lentils. They must have been good. You see these themes coming through? If Daniel could not master appetite, then how could he ever be who God had called him to be in a foreign land? In fact, after this test, he receives the prophetic gift. Faithfulness in smaller things prepares you for greater responsibilities. It really does. And so, I've got a couple of points there that I think is really important. So Daniel, number one, he wouldn't defile himself, as the scripture says, in verse eight. But let's read the, we're gonna read from verses eight all the way through to the end of verse 14. But I just love those first six words. But Daniel purposed in his heart. The word but is really cool because it's kind of negating everything that's just gone before it. Like how Nebuchadnezzar is trying to change everything for Daniel, like he's changed their names, he's, he's, he's given them this great banquet, you know, he's indoctrinating them. And it says, but there's one thing that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't change and that was Daniel's heart because he chose to give it to God. Isn't that cool, hey? It just shows you that your circumstances can be manipulated in such a way that you are set on making certain decisions, but that decision that you make is not automatic. 
You have the power of your destiny through the choices that you make. God has given you the freedom to choose and you can choose him with the will that God has given to you. That's what Daniel does. When it's difficult, he chooses God's will. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel, and this is a really cool point. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. We'll come to this shortly, but just keep in your mind that he had brought Daniel into favor. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then he would endanger my head before the king. <laughs> like what I said before. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a guy to be messed with. In fact, in these societies at this time, if there was a messenger that brought bad news to the king, guess what would often happen to that messenger? They would die. And so he's in charge of these eunuchs. And if he doesn't do what's required of him, then he's gonna lose his life. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. If you've got a King James Version, it says pulse. Sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Give me pulse to eat, pulse and water. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Now, he's not willing to say, okay, three years you can eat this. 10 days, we'll see what happens and we'll review. If it works, then sweet. If it doesn't, then we'll abandon it. I love in verse nine where it says, that God gives Daniel, what's that word again? Favor. So number one in verse eight, Daniel does what with his heart? He purposes, he chooses, he makes an immovable decision for God that he probably made on the way to Babylon. He probably made in Jerusalem as a young man with all the pagan practices that were going around him in Jerusalem. He made an immovable decision for God. He, he, he reinforced that decision on the way to Babylon. He smells the food, he can see the food and he's like, I'm just continuing to make this immovable decision for God. And he makes this immovable decision for God and then what does God do? God gives him favor. The Hebrew word there for favor is the Hebrew word kesed. Now, that is an amazing word. It is often used in reference of how God feels towards us. In fact, there is no English equivalent for the word kesed. So much so that we have various words in the English language to try to describe kesed, loving kindness, faithfulness, long-suffering, mercy, love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And none of these words fully capture the word kesed. And God gives this to the chief of the eunuchs. Do you know what this love is? 
This is a God-given agape love. And who does God give it to? Chief of the eunuchs. And how do I know that it's a God-given love? Well, not only what the word means, when you look at what the word means and who often uses the word to describe his love for us, but secondly, what the chief of the eunuchs is willing to do for Daniel when he knows what the king is like. What is he willing to do? Put his life on the line. Does that remind you of somebody else? Isn't it interesting when there's trouble, when there's turmoil, when there's difficult things in front of us, we often want to escape or God to reveal the path for us before we move forward in faith. But sometimes God says, I want you to exercise the courage to step forward and then you will see, for, see me fight for you in ways that you never imagined. If Daniel hadn't made his immovable decision, knowing the end from the beginning, because he didn't, then he never would have seen God fight for him in the heart of this man. Isn't that really cool? Like Daniel makes a decision of the heart and then God moves on somebody else, else's heart that they're in alignment. I think this is really powerful. In fact, while we got our Bibles, I got this in our notes. I'm, I'm studying through the book of Ezekiel at the moment. I think it's a really cool book. Um, lots of judgment in Ezekiel. It's, it's an interesting book. But in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. They lived around the same time. Ezekiel himself went into captivity into Babylon and he wrote for the captives. In fact, if you want to kind of get a bit of an impression or an idea of what it was like to be a captive, then read the first 15 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. That give you a bit of an impression. And Ezekiel doesn't mince his word. He speaks against the princes of the land. He speaks against the, the priests of the land because Ezekiel was a priest himself. He speaks against the elders of the land. He, he doesn't miss anybody. He speaks against the false prophets, the people who are saying peace and safety when there was no peace and safety. And in chapter 14 and verse 14, he references Daniel, which is remarkable because Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Don't you just love it when you study the Bible and you find out things that you hadn't seen before. It's like, I was reading this for my devotions and I came across this passage. I'm like, oh, I have to use this tonight. Chapter 14 and verse 14. He says, read verse, we'll start in verse 13. Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it and cut it off, man and beast from it. Verse 14 is the key. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Now, this is an important point here. Who are the three men? Noah, Daniel, and Job. Now, do you know what we often do to people who have had great and glorious histories? Guess what we often do to them? We elevate them. We don't really do that with contemporaries, particularly people who are still living. Ezekiel speaks of Noah. Noah did a great work. What was he responsible for? Well, building a boat that we can live today. What was Job? What happened to Job? There's a whole book dedicated to, to the man Job and his faith through the midst of the most severe trials that you could consider any man except besides Jesus has gone through. And in the midst of these great figures of faith, we have Daniel who's still alive in Babylon. You can't tell me that Daniel wasn't well known amongst the captives. 
And could it be that his witness in a foreign land inspired the faith in others? The decisions that we make are not just decisions that affect us, but they're decisions that affect others. And isn't it amazing that Daniel's small decision, seemingly so small on diet, created him to be the man that stood amongst the illustrious company of Job and Noah as embodiments of righteousness and and what the faith of Jesus actually looks like. I think that's really cool. So, let's jump back to the story here. So back to Daniel. I wanna respect your time and I wanna finish on time. Otherwise you won't come back again. Verse 15 of Daniel chapter one. What have we looked at so far? We've looked at Daniel's world, what Babylon was like. Babylon was an amazing city. How many walls around the outside? Two, I kind of confused you with that. There was two, but two but four. Um, does anybody remember how many meters around there you had to go through? You remember better than me, I forgot that. Um, the Ishtar Gate, Nebuchadnezzar puts a little inscription on this. What were the three spiritual attacks that Nebuchadnezzar, his friends, and the rest of the Hebrew boys that arrived in Babylon, what are the three spiritual attacks that they received as soon as they arrived? Identity with their names. The education that they were to be received, that was to be imposed upon them, and their diet. But then Daniel does what in his heart? He purposes. And for the rest of the book, you see Daniel purposing. These are the fruits well, this is the fruit of the test God delivers. In verse 15 it reads, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared, what's that word? Better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Is God faithful? Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables for three years. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge. Remember from the start, they were looking for men with knowledge. God gave them knowledge. Not Nebuchadnezzar, God did. He gave them knowledge. He gave them skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Daniel was how old when he came to Babylon? 18. After three years, he would have been around 21. And he had knowledge in how much? My God can do great things. If you trust him and put him first, you see what he can do. And then in verse 18, it says, now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, This was the final test, to be brought in before the king of the world. They brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. Among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They stood apart. And in the matters of wisdom and understanding, about which the king examined them, he found them how many times? 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers were in all his realms, probably because they weren't practicing magic or practicing astrology, but definitely because God's hand was on them. Then Daniel continued to the first year of King Cyrus. Now, what I've got written here is that these young men had the faith of Jesus. 
I just wanna read this out here. God honored Daniel because Daniel honored God. When you put God first, amazing things can happen. This is quite remarkable when all things are considered. His nation was conquered. The vessels in the temple are taken. He's in a foreign land with a new name. He's learning things that has caused his nation to be destroyed. So the things that he's learning from Babylonian literature have actually been part of the reason why Israel has fallen. And he's learning all of these things. And yet he still believes that God is on his throne and that God can fight his battles. And I just love the faith of Daniel. Often in Bible stories, we have the benefit of looking back, don't we? And so we know how the story is gonna finish before it finishes because we've read the story before. But when you're in the midst of that adversity or in the midst of that crucible, it's very difficult sometimes to see through it to the other side. And I just love the faith of Daniel that he goes to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, okay, give me pulse and water. Not knowing that God was gonna move in such a way. You see it in chapter two with the king's dream. In chapter two, this great troubling dream that Nebuchadnezzar can't answer. We're gonna look at this next week. And Daniel gets a knock on the door in the midst of the night and the death decree says, hey, it's time for you to come and die because the wise man couldn't answer this dream. Daniel goes and prays, not knowing that God will give him the dream and the interpretation. Isn't that powerful? He has a faith that transcends the adversity that he's in. He believes that God is able when everything around him screams the opposite. He has the faith of Jesus, and I tell you what, there is an end time application for that. Daniel has an end time message, but just as much as it's an end time message, his life is an end time message of what the faith of Jesus looks like for those people that go through those final hours of human history. In verse 17, I wanna kinda of close on, on these points here. Often we think that God gave them wisdom and skill and all that kind of stuff because they're on a pulse and water diet. Now that's good for you. But that's not why they were intelligent or why God gave them wisdom. They received that because God gave that to them. Sorry, my Siri thing's activated here, okay. The diet was the test, but putting God first was the principle and that provided the blessing. Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it was through this test that Daniel received the prophetic gift. Point C here on the last page. Babylon gave them an education, but God gave them wisdom. Babylon gave them new names, but God fulfilled their original names. I think this is a really cool point. The devil's always trying to thwart the plans of God, but what's God always doing? He's showing him up. So they receive different names, trying to remove their identity, but God instead fulfills their original names. What were their original names? Well, let's read them out again. The first name, Mishael, who is what God is. He's a reflector of God in a foreign land. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped in this situation. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. Isn't that powerful? 
When Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah receive favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuch, that word favor is synonymous with the word grace. For you have been saved by grace through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. They were given unmerited favor. And the result was that honoring God gave them great rewards. These guys were put in positions of influence now. The wise men weren't some add-on. These wise men, the wise men in Babylonian culture, in ancient cultures, they largely regulated and ruled the life of the king. And what I mean by that is this, where they fought battles, what festivals they did, what building projects they undertook, they all went through the wise men. And now Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, I think it's it's really powerful when you think about it, the apparent defeat of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, but yet God has his men in high places in the foreign land that conquered his people. There is light shining in the darkness. In the books Prophets and Kings, it says this, and this is an application for us here today. True success in any line of work is not the result of chance or accident or destiny. It is the outworking of God's providences the reward of faith and discretion, of virtue and perseverance. Fine mental qualities and a moral, high moral tone are not the result of accident. God gives opportunities. Success depends upon the use made of them. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? And so my challenge for us here today, were those six words that form the heart of this chapter? and set the tone for the rest of the book. But Daniel purposed in his heart. My question for you tonight is this. Have you purposed in your heart? Have you chosen God as your first, your last, and your best in everything? I wanna challenge you tonight that as we pray right now, that you may make a decision in your heart. God, I wanna purpose in my heart to choose you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we wanna thank you so much that you are worth following, not because the road is easy, but because the road is best. Father, we wanna purpose in our hearts here today. We know that our promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. But Father, we wanna make a movable decision after a movable decision after a movable decision that Father, we become settled in the truth and Father, sealed with your character. That, Father, it doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't matter what adversity blows our way. We have chosen you, and you will give us the grace to stand in the midst of it. Father, may we be able to overcome the fleshy lusts and appetites of our heart. For Daniel, it was diet. For us, it might be other things. May we be willing to let anything go for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. May you bless us with your presence, Son, as we continue to study through the book of Daniel. Father, we ask and pray that we may not only be challenged with the end time message, but that, Father, we may be challenged with the end time life that you've called us all to live. We ask and pray for the grace and the strength to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.